Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you so much for joining us again this week on the program and uh, for your faithfully watching the program. We uh, so deeply appreciate those of you who have uh, liked us, our public profile on Facebook and sent messages via email. It's really encouraging to realize the audience that uh, is watching us. When you write, let us know where you're watching us from so we can be good stewards of the networks that we are on. I wanted to uh, just come to you a little bit though, at the beginning of this and, uh, and, and mention to you some books that we now have available to you. Sometimes we don't talk about the things uh, that uh, we've written uh, and so you don't know anything about them. Once in a while we do, but we have in the last couple of weeks. Anyway, the first book I want to mention to you this morning is a book that I wrote in 2007 called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. In this book, what we do is we go through about the first five chapters of the book of Revelation and we show how the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of His redemptive work. I believe the day of the Lord is twofold. It is to the believer the great day, and to the unbeliever it was the terrible day. I believe many of the events of the book of Revelation occurred in the first century in A.D. 70 or in that period of time from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. when a lot of the stuff that was prophesied came to pass, but yet in the midst of that I, the first seven churches that he writes to are really seven churches that are really in Asia. And so it would have to have some relevance to a first century church. And what the main thing he writes to them about is that they need to repent, they need to change the way they think. And that repentance was a change from moving from a old covenant mentality to a new covenant kingdom mentality. You'd be blessed by this book. If you've been afraid of the book of Revelation, you need to get this book. It'll help you. It's very grace-based. This book also is titled, the second book I wrote here is called The Unforced Rhythms of Grace. And it comes from Matthew 11. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me and I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, see how I do it. I will teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. And this book is written uh, from Matthew 11 where Jesus is saying to all of those that had been under an old covenant again for so many years, He said, you're tired, you're weary, you're burned out. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And out of this book we show uh, what flows from this incredible posture of rest. And you're going to be blessed uh, to get that book also. And then the last book that I wrote is called From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. This one just came off of the press in 2017. It's one of the most important pieces of work I believe I've done to date. Because what it does is it marries the message of grace with the gospel of the kingdom. And you say, what does that mean? It means we move from the government of laws written on stones to the government of Holy Spirit where He writes His law on our hearts. The Holy Spirit is to the New Covenant what the law was to the Old Covenant. And uh, what's amazing is that when we learn how to walk by the Spirit and live out of the Spirit, the Kingdom of God begins to govern our lives. And what I did with this is this, this book has a lot out of Matthew 3. I've been teaching the last several weeks and talking about the priesthood of Jesus. And this book really really exhaust a lot of the stuff that was happening in the River Jordan with John the Baptist. You'll be blessed by getting this. And also, last but not least, our message of the Monk Club is available to you for $7 a month or $70 a year. And that's by subscription. We send you a CD every month. That's part of our partner base that helps us to touch 
lot, a lot of homes through the medium of television. So your help with that, all of the stuff that you purchase helps go to help us to pay airtime and ministry costs, and we are deeply grateful for that. Uh, simply go to my website to order those things, and uh, uh, you'll be blessed by getting them. I'm going to get back in the Word today. We're going to go into the fifth chapter of Hebrews once again and try to, at least in this segment or the next segment, uh, to be able to sew up some of these things. But if you missed any of this, you can go back to our YouTube channel, and everything we've aired to date is archived there, so you can catch up with what we're sharing and saying. And it's also the audio portions are on our iTunes page. You can go to our website. Again, there's a direct link there to that. We can watch it at your leisure. Let's get into the Word. Uh, uh, Hebrews 5, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and them that are out of the way, for, he, for that he himself is also compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people also, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor to himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now, we covered a lot of these verses in the last couple of segments that we just taught, the last three especially. When did this happen? We took you back to the Scriptures where he's quoting this from. Uh, one of the main things about he, Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he said to him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. The first time God calls him, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased, is in Matthew 3. I, I told you in this last book I wrote, it deals with quite a bit, John the Baptist was in the River Jordan to fulfill all righteousness. And what he was doing with Jesus in the River Jordan is that every priest had to be inaugurated by washing him with water. John the Baptist was a Levitical priest who was probably the heir apparent to become the high priest of the Levitical system. But he's now washing Jesus and preparing him whom nothing is said of him out of the tribe of Levi. He's out of the tribe of Judah. And because he's out of the tribe of Judah, there's a new priesthood coming on the scene. And this new priesthood is a king-priest ministry after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus was becoming the new priest. And John the Baptist was relinquishing his Levitical priesthood. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, if there's a change of priesthood, then there must of necessity be a change of the law. This should have screamed to this first century bunch of people, we got a new priest, and we got a new covenant, and we've got a new covenant, because there has to be a change of a law when there's a change of priesthood. I showed you how that the children of Israel, uh, the moment they crossed out of the Red Sea into the wilderness, God said, I brought you here to make a kingdom of priests out of you. God was going to take the whole nation of Israel and make them a kingdom of priests that I believe would have ultimately been used to touch the Gentiles because the mystery that was hid from ages was that God would include the Gentiles. I showed you that also when he quotes that out of Psalm 2, when he declared him to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he did that. He said, when it said in another place, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He says that in Psalm 2, and he says to him, Ask me, and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. God's plan and predetermined and predestined will was to include both Jew and Gentiles into this greater covenant. The new covenant 
is not exclusive. It includes both Jew and Gentile. It draws a bigger circle and says, whosoever will may come. But the only way into this new covenant is not through your natural genealogy. It is through your new birth experience as you get in Christ, who is your promised land and who is the priesthood that's now after the order of Melchizedek. But when they cross the Red Sea, God offers to make them a whole nation of priests. And when He does that, He simply says to them, uh, I'm calling you a whole nation of priests. And the people, when God came down on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, to meet with the people, the people said to Moses, I think this is in Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's also in Exodus chapter 20, that the people said to Moses, we're afraid of him. You go talk to him. And whatever he says to you, we will do it. Now let me tell you, that the people forfeited a personal relationship as a nation of priests with God for a mediator system. God said to tell Moses, He said, I heard the people in their tents say that, that we're afraid of Him. You go talk to Him. And, and, and Moses, uh, God said, I, God was so anxious to have a relationship. He agrees to the terms. What He was offering them, everybody having access to God. But, he, he, but see, the moment you forfeit a personal relationship with God, the more rules you're going to need. And so God gives them laws written on stone. I'm convinced that when you don't have a relationship with God, you need rules on rocks. Now, I'm not trying to put you back under the law, but that's what God was doing under this old covenant is if you don't have a relationship, then you're going to have to have some, some rules to go by. You know, even the leaders of our great nation said, if there is not some internal moral compass, we cannot pass enough laws to cause people to behave. As I look at some of the stuff that's going on in our country, we keep on thinking we can legislate morality, and we think we can legislate uh, enough laws to make people behave. And yes, you have to have some laws for lawless people, but the answer to the problems of our society is we need to get people back in relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And I'm telling you, I think sometimes we have so put God as the last thing on our list, even in families and our local churches, that we're missing getting the influence of God. We've taken Him out of our schools, out of our homes. And, and you know, we, we can sit here and complain and say, well, you know, we took prayer out of the school. But the problem is we took it out of our homes. Pray with your children before you go. My wife always, and if I was home, we prayed with the kids before we sent them off to school. I believe you've got to be able to, this is not just a once in a while thing, it's something you pour into people and you bring your children into a place where they can realize, I've got personal relationship with Jesus myself. But the people, the moment they said, you talk to Him, we're afraid of Him. The audible voice of God was not heard again for almost 1,500 years. And when Jesus comes up out of the River Jordan, the audible voice of God speaks again, and He said, That's my beloved Son, and whom I'm well pleased. And God was once again bringing another priesthood on the scene that would not only include Jesus as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but He would make a royal priesthood. But there would be also an order of Melchizedek, a generation of priests. And so the Apostle Peter got a hold of this revelation, and he says to them in the first century, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. 
You're a holy nation. See, what he's saying is God is reoffering this whole priesthood of the believer back to his people where we have access to him without a mediator and we could come boldly to a throne of grace and obtain mercy. And it literally become a nation of priests that will minister to the nations of the earth, ministering from a mercy seat after the order of Melchizedek. But when he restores that priest, when he restores that priesthood back after the order of Melchizedek, it comes with bread and wine, and it comes to serve that bread and wine. I was thinking then, as I you know, recently have studied quite a bit on church history, that one of the things that happened within 300 years of the apostles passing off of the scene is that they began to move towards an, uh, more of a hierarchical system, more of a, uh, you know, uh, denying the believer access as a priest until the first thing you know, uh, people didn't have access. They had to come through a priest, had to come through a bishop, had to come through a man of God. And while I appreciate ministry, and I appreciate fivefold ministry, I'm telling you, you've got direct access to God. That went on for almost 1,200 to 1,300 years until Luther began to stand back up. And when Martin Luther began to bring the Reformation, one of the things he did once again was he restored the revelation of the priesthood of the believer that every one of us have access to God by the blood of Jesus into this grace. I think that's powerful. So you're a priesthood. One of the things that I want to mention as we go on down through here is he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that uh, Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High. Now, uh, one of the things that caught my attention as I thought about uh, Melchizedek being the priest of the Most High is that the terminology Most High is a name of God, El Elyon. Uh, Melchizedek is the priest of El Elyon. That's the name of God that it uses. It does not use the Jehovah names. It uses El Elyon. He's the priest of the Most High God. Abraham, on the way back from the slaughter of the kings of Chedorlaomer, uh, was served bread and wine by Melchizedek, and he was the priest of El Elyon. Now, one of the other things that I noticed is that the word El Elyon is only ever used when it talks about Jesus, first of all, being the son of the highest. He's the son of El Elyon. But another thing that I begin to realize is that the name of God El Elyon is only used to describe, again, the most holy place, the third dimension of the tabernacle of Moses, wherein was the mercy seat. So Melchizedek is a priest who ministers from the most holy place or from the perspective of the mercy seat. And when I think about that, I cannot help but think about, first of all, Psalm 91, where he said, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. That's the same name of God that's used over Melchizedek, El Elyon, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's the name El Shaddai. And then I will say of the Lord Yahweh, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God Elohim in whom I can trust. He uses almost every name of God in that chapter in Psalm 91. But when I think about the mercy seat, and he's saying that El Elyon uh, Jesus is the priest of El Elyon, the Most High God. Uh, he's flowing. He, uh, what I see him saying is he's flowing from the mercy seat. He's flowing from the most holy place. 
He's flowing from a blood-sprinkled mercy seat. And when I think about this mercy seat, I can't help but my mind goes to the imagery of John chapter 20 where Jesus is coming up out of the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And when he comes up out of that tomb, uh, the, the, the apostles run there early uh, on the first day of the week and they see the stone rolled away. Now to me, the stone being rolled away powerfully pictures the fact that Jesus had completely and totally fulfilled the law, the stone, the, the covenant written on stone, and rolled the covenant of death away. Not to let dead, stinking flesh loose. See, that's what a lot of people have done, is rolled the stone away, and all it's done is release dead, stinking flesh. But see, what we're trying to say here is, we're rolling the stone away. But not to release your dead, stinking flesh. We're doing it to release the power of resurrection that's in your life. See, the power of resurrection is not just when you die, it's every day in your life that makes you alive. But the thing I want you to see is the imagery I want to point out without chasing too many rabbits here today, is that when, they, John and, uh, when, the, when the apostles stooped down to look into the tomb, the Bible said in John chapter 20 that they saw an angel standing at the head and an angel standing at the foot of where Jesus had lain. If you can picture this, you are picturing what the mercy seat looks like because on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, there was an angel and they turned toward each other, there were cherubims that turned toward each other, and between these cherubims was a blood-sprinkled mercy seat. So that when I see Psalm 91 saying, you can trust what's under his wings, is he simply saying, listen, what's under his wings is a blood-sprinkled mercy seat, and you can trust what's under that. Hallelujah. So that if you're going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, you're going to have to get a revelation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and His finished work and what that declares to us. God said, I will meet with you between the cherubs. That's where God shows up is in the finished work of Jesus Christ in a blood sprinkled mercy seat. The second thing that I found out about this is that the word for ark that's used there described the ark of the covenant of the Lord is the, the word for ark there, the first usage of this word was translated as a coffin, the word coffin. And it's used where they carried the bones of Joseph up out of Egypt. It says they carried his coffin. It is the same Hebrew word as we translate ark a little bit later. And so when I saw that the ark was a coffin, I, I, man, this thing just exploded in me. Because I realized that if the ark is a coffin, it has to be a coffin for something. And I thought, well, what's in this ark? There were three things in the ark. The unbroken tablets of the law, the golden pot of manna, and the rod of Aaron that budded. And man, the first thing that hit, I said, Lord, if the ark is a coffin and the law of Moses was in it, the unbroken tablets of the law, man, what's that picture? He said, it pictures the fact that Jesus in His earth walk, as we've already studied in, in Hebrews 5, was tempted in every point, yet without sin, unbroken tablets of the law. Jesus completely fulfilled every jot and twiddle, tittle of the law. And then He took that law, the Scripture says in Colossians 2, He nailed the handwriting of ordinance that was against us to His cross. So that, if I could say it like this from Romans 7, we have become dead to the law 
by the body of Christ that we should be married to another. So one of the things that was buried in this coffin called an ark was he put the unbroken tablets of the law in that, in that ark so that it became a coffin so that you and I could become dead to the law body of, by the body of Christ so we could be married to another. So the ark was a coffin for the law. The second thing that was in there was the golden pot of manna. Now when God gave them the manna, He said, I'm going to give them this manna to see if they will obey my law or no. And of course you know they did not obey His law. And they did not obey, and they took, they gathered more than they were supposed to, then they loathed the light bread, and God sent quail to them. But here's the thing, Jesus, on the other hand, said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. But I'm the true bread that came down from heaven, that if a man eats this, he'll live. So Jesus became that manna. In other words, the manna that's laid up in this Ark of the Covenant is that Jesus took all of your rebellion, because they gave the, the manna to see if they would obey His law or no. The answer was no, they did not. But Jesus did. And then they put this golden pot of manna before the ark of the Lord to show that Jesus in His death took everything that you had coming so you could get what He has coming under the new covenant. It became an ark, or if you will, a coffin to your rebellion. And Jesus became that true bread that came down from heaven. And the book of Revelation comes along and says, I'll give you that overcome to eat of the hidden manna. Now that's in my first book on the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'll give you to eat. In other words, you're going to feed on the fact that Jesus did completely keep all of that and put it in an ark so that we can never be judged again on the basis of that old covenant paradigm. And the third thing that was in that was the rod of Aaron that budded. Now again, what that speaks of is the death of the Aaronic priesthood being put inside of that coffin or that ark so that another priesthood after the order of Melchizedek has arisen. And what's happened is now that we are entering into a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek where we serve bread and wine and we serve the finished work of Jesus Christ and we become priests of El Elyon, which is the Most High God. Now the last thing he says in this is that he was called of God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that won't teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God are become such as have need of milk and strong meat, and not strong meat, I'm sorry. For everyone that uses milk, watch this, is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now this is a powerful point that I want to get before I move into chapter 6. He comes on to say, when you need to be teachers, you need to want to teach you again. But he said, everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So when you get skilled in the word of righteousness, what's that mean? That means you have learned that under the new covenant, your righteousness is not based on your performance. It's based on a sacrifice. That this one sacrifice that this one priest offered once and for all has forever dealt with your sin and has made you righteous. He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. And once you get that issue settled, 
He said, then you can eat meat. But what we've got to do is keep on feeding people milk until they understand that they are righteous, not based on their performance, but based on the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done as this Melchizedek priesthood. And then he comes down and says something that I want to really get before I quit this this evening. As he said, having who, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This intrigued me. Because I thought about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God put that tree in that garden and says, of all the trees you can eat, freely eat, but don't eat of that tree. Now, I'm convinced that God didn't just put that tree there for him to be tempted with it. I think what God was saying is, there's some point in our relationship that I'm going to let you eat from that tree. But it's not going to be before you have yourself developed from eating from the tree of life. In other words, once you have your senses exercised, once you know who you are in Christ, once you've got your identity settled, see, all sin flows from a mistaken identity. And the serpent says to uh, Adam and Eve, in the moment you get enough information about good and evil, you can make yourself like God. What Adam should have said is, I'm already like God, get out of my face. But he became the victim the first victim of identity theft, and he believed the lie and suffered the consequences of the lie that he believed. But I'm convinced that the new covenant brings you back to the tree of life because Adam has a tree of life and he chooses a tree of death. But Jesus chooses a tree of death and turns it into a tree of life. And the moment you get yourself established in this word of righteousness, the moment you get satisfied with the milk, and the milk has built the right bone structure and laid the right foundation in your life, and you know you're the righteousness of God, and then you're going to have, by reason of the exercise of your maturity and your strength, you're going to be able to discern what is good and evil. Not just right and wrong, but good and evil. And the difference is one's an action and the other is a condition of the heart. Sometimes you can do the right thing and it's evil, and, some, and, and sometimes you can do uh, the wrong thing, and, and it's right. In other words, the motive and the heart is what determines the good and the evil. But I'm simply after this, before I run out of time, is that the, the more we are exercised, I believe God would have let Adam have to eat of that tree somewhere as he matured and developed a relationship with God. God said, all right, now I'm going to let you feed from this tree. But we need to have your senses exercised first. You need to know your identity. You need to be under a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You need to be fed milk. You need to have something that brings you into a place where then you can handle the strong meat and you'll be able to not only discern good and evil, but you'll be able to live not from that tree, but from the tree of life and from the tree of your identity in Christ. And I believe that's what this Melchizedek priesthood is designed to bring you back under. Uh, I hope that's been a blessing to you. We must be a priest that flows from the most holy place. You can trust what's under His wings. What's under His wings is a mercy seat. It's a fulfilled law. It's a fulfilled everything. So that when you trust what's under His wings, then you won't have to worry or fear about the terror or none of that stuff. But only with your eyes will you see and behold the reward of the wicked. We're out of time, but take a moment to write 
to us. Uh, the address will come up on the screen. If you can sow a seed into the ministry, you can send a check or money order to what's on the screen. You can also go to our website and become a partner or give one-time gift, your credit card or debit card. There's a link directly there where you can give through our PayPal account. And uh, your gifts help us take the gospel around the world. We're deeply grateful. We thank you for uh, helping us to stay on the air this year. We want to wish you a happy holiday season. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. This is probably going to air on the new year. So God bless you. We wish you the best for the new year. Thanks for joining us. God bless you. I'm very excited to announce the release of my newest book. It is titled From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. In this book, we talk about how the gospel is not about a law you have to keep. It is about receiving a life that will keep you. It is not about living this life out of fear. It is about living a life of faith. It is not about rules. It's about a relationship with a loving father. It is about moving from the old covenant government of condemnation to the new covenant government of affirmation. It is about living life as a citizen of the kingdom right now.